Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of January the 2nd, 2022. Happy New Year to you and to yours. As the start of the new year is here, we uh, are going to spend a couple weeks looking at some of the um, parables of Jesus and what these rich uh, stories and what these rich teachings have for us. Today, so we, we begin here in Matthew chapter 24, verses 39 through 51, and I'm reading from the NIV. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he thinks uh, he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of. And he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So like we said, this is the beginning of a new series, if you will, on the parables of Jesus. And the parables are these exciting and challenging portions of Scripture. They're, they're, they're almost like mystery novels or movies. And there's always sort of something secret about them, something hidden. So they're, they're really enticing and challenging. There are clues given in each of the parables to lead us to the, to the meaning of it. You see, this is God's way of stimulating us to investigate, to discover maybe a hidden truth, which is going to be a real treasure. It's going to enrich our lives when we act on it. And so with an investigation of, of the treasures of the parables, we end up with this tremendously exciting discovery of new truth. We, we will begin with a series of three parables from Jesus's teaching in connection with what's called the Olivet Discourse, as recorded in Matthew 24 and 25. These are a great follow-up to, to Thessalonians, because there we were looking at prophetic matters, especially matters concerning the last days and times of the return of Jesus to earth. And so these three parables concern that same subject, but from three different approaches. They are the parable of the household, the, the parable of the ten maidens or ten virgins, and the parable of the talents. All three parables are an amplification of one word which Jesus gave to his disciples after he had outlined in the course of events, he said to them, watch. That word is stressed throughout this whole passage. It is the one command Jesus gives to those that are waiting for his coming through all the intervening centuries. No matter how long he may delay, the word is watch. And these three parables tell us what it means to watch. So therefore, they're extremely important to us. 
So in chapter 24, verse 42, Jesus says, watch, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Matthew 24, 42. Also in verse 44, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect. And again, in chapter 25, after he has completed the story of the ten maidens, he says in verse 13, watch, therefore, for you neither know the day or the hour. So it's clear that when that he is amplifying the word watch. Now, there have been in the course of centuries, two extremes of interpretation of what Jesus meant when he said watch. There have been those who took it very seriously. They studied the signs of the coming of the Lord, which which are brought out in sort of these predictive passages in both the New Testament and the Old, they become so involved that that they actually set dates for the return of Jesus Christ. And again and again, men have said that Jesus was coming on a certain day and on the basis of what they found in Scripture. And sometimes they've even sold their homes, their property, put on white robes and gone out to the hilltops to wait for Jesus to return. Well, he did not, of course, and they were disappointed. And then they had to explain by intricate interpretations of Scripture. But, but that ex- is an extreme and wrong interpretation of what watch means. Jesus did not mean that we're to be standing sort of forever gazing up into the heavens. He means we are instead to involve ourselves in the activities brought out in these three parables. And that's why he gave them to us. Another extreme interpretation of watch is to come to the conclusion that we cannot know the time of Jesus's coming. And therefore, there's no use to worry about it. Forget it. Just go on living life as you like until he comes. If he comes, then he comes. It, it is time enough to worry about it then. So in the meanwhile, go on living as you please, regardless of whether he's coming or not. That really is to live as though he were not coming at all, though. And that's why many Christians have settled for that. But that is the reason Jesus gave us these parables. If we don't, if we don't understand the parables, we will not watch the way that he tells us to. And if we do not watch, well, then we're, we will be deceived. And the key note of this passage in Matthew 24 and 25 is that the intervening age between our time that Jesus uttered these words and the time he would come again is to be an age of unprecedented deceit. It's a time when it is easy to be fooled, when many will be attracted by the glamour of the phony, the glitter of the faults, and and we, we... drawn away by enticing, almost siren-like voices that will lead us down wrong paths, and and many of us are going to be confused. So let's take the first parable found in chapter 24, verses 45 through 21. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set up over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunken, the master of that expected, that of the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will punish him and put him with the hypocrites. And there men will weep and gnash their teeth. So it's obvious that this situation fits us. Here's a household whose master is away. 
and the household is waiting for him to come back, to return. The master has appointed certain servants and given them responsibility during the time of absence. The only activity mentioned is that of feeding the household. These servants have the primary and very important task of feeding the household at the proper time. So that is the first essential then in watching. Watching means to feed and be fed by the word of God, as we'll see in just a a moment. This is most obvious in the parable. Uh, I think it's the most obvious part of this parable. The household must eat or they can do nothing else. That, that is, it's basic. It's fundamental. If they do not eat, they're not going to survive. They're going to perish. They're going to die. They can do nothing else until they've established their health and their strength by eating. So now the household is obviously the church and, and the house of God. It's described in Scripture. The servants are those appointed to teach within the church. It does not only mean pastors or evangelists or theologians. It means authors, Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, kid club teachers, Bible small group leaders, parents, friends, anyone within uh, within the position of teaching another within the body of Christ. So notice how the Lord puts it. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? And he invites us to put our own name there. Are, Are we that kind of servant? Are we a teacher? Well, then, are, are we this kind of a teacher? That's what Jesus is asking. The, the food is obviously the Word of God. Where, what else could it be? The Word of God is intended to feed the people of God. Jesus said, to him, said so himself. Remember when the devil came and tempted him to turn stones into bread, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's Matthew 4. It's also Luke 4. So the Word of God is truth. It is It is the unveiling of reality. It is the revelation of the way things, that the way things really are. So if we're going to live, we have to, we have got to know what life is all about, to to know the way things really are. And that is why the word of truth is also food. It is referred to as, as such in many places in scripture. In the first letter, uh, Peter uh, writes, he exhorts us to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow. First Peter chapter two, there's a certain quality about the word of God that is like milk to a baby. It feeds, it establishes life. In another place, Paul mentions the strong meat of the word, Hebrews five. There's something that, that the most intelligent mind can ponder and which will sustain the most advanced Christian. There's power in it and strength to be derived from it. It is absolutely essential and fundamental to the spiritual growth or understanding of life. It is then not just for the religious, but is the revelation of the way things are in life, in death, in the universe, the physical universe, as well as the world of ideas, of thoughts, the social life of humanity. It touches everything. We can never understand life unless we understand the word of God. That fact is basic, it's essential, and it's fundamental to the entire Christian message. Therefore, we're not talking about something that ought to interest only the select few. It ought to interest anyone, anywhere. That is the character of the Word of God. So in this parable, we'll notice that Jesus takes note of two kinds of servants. There are faithful and the faithless. The faithful are those who feed continually and and plentifully the ones entrusted to their care. When the master returns, Jesus says, blessed, happy is that servant 
when his master comes and finds him doing what he was told to do. His approbation is put in these terms. He will set him over all his possessions. From that, we can gain an idea of how important this is. To feed someone else from the word of God is to learn how to live ourselves. If we learn how to understand life the way God has designed it and made it, then we can understand how the universe functions and the marvelous procedure that, and, and how God relates to humanity, works through humanity, lives in humanity. We become masters, so to speak, of the secret of life, that it's, that it's all the Lord. And then when the Lord returns, he, he gives us an opportunity to exercise that knowledge in the realms of power beyond belief, beyond our highest imaginings right now. The word of God is full of hints like this, of what the future is like for those who learn how to live down here now in the yet. It will be incredibly exciting. It will be beyond our wildest imaginations. We will be equipped with power and tools more exciting and more capable than than anything we could possibly imagine. We'll be giving tasks of fantastic involvement. And all this is hidden in these words. He will set him over all his possessions. It includes everything. We are Christ and Christ is God, says Paul. Therefore, all things are yours. There's tremendous possibilities involved in that passage. Well, then what about the faithless servant, the faithless one? This is the one who fails to feed the household of God. The Lord tells us what happens. He, he cannot control the household and begins to beat them. And the only way he can get them to do what he wants is to lash out at them, to beat them, hound them, strike them. He suffers in his own personal moral breakdown. He, he indulges his own appetites to extremes, eats and drinks with a drunken. And when the master returns, he finds the man failing in his primary task and he's condemned and sent to a place of frustration and eternal defiance against the will of God. There men weep out of a sense of lost opportunity and they gnash their teeth in defiance of God. So all this underscores the importance of feeding on the word. That is the whole thrust of this parable. It is what Jesus wants to emphasize, emphasize. So what does the word of God accomplish that makes it so absolutely fundamentally necessary? Well, let's list several things, list seven specific things from scriptures, which the word of God does. They're taken from many places. They're taken from all over. So it's not necessarily I'm going to quote chapter and verse for each one in support, but we find that these seven things can never be obtained from any other source. Nothing else will, will accomplish the seven things that the Word of God alone can do in our life. So the first of the seven accomplishments is the Word of God reveals Jesus Christ, and then it, so then it strengthens and refreshes the human spirit. That is, that's its primary purpose. If it does nothing else than that, it has achieved its major task. It is not to give us information primarily. It is to help us to see a person the person, the Lord Jesus, as the opening words of Hebrews puts it, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. And what the son says to us is the ultimate revelation of life. To see the son, 
through the medium of the word is to find our own heart attracted and drawn to this marvelous personality, this magnificent one, this spotless, unsullied son of God in all the magnificence of his strength and greatness. That is the Bible's primary purpose. When we read it, we read it for that. We read it to find Jesus because he is on every page of the Old and the New Testament. The Bible is all about Jesus Christ. The second thing is the word makes possible um, increasing self-understanding. And so knowledge and, and guidance for ourselves are attainable. James says that the word is a mirror. And so when we stand in front of it, we see ourselves there's no other book in the world which will do this. There are helpful insights in psychology and psychiatry, but, but the help we get from these ultimately derives from the scriptures. Yet the, the Bible goes much further than any of these. It, it truly helps us understand ourselves. An eminent French professor, Dr. Emile Caillé, who was an agnostic tells how he became a Christian through a remarkable experience of being given a Bible in the most unusual way. He calls the Bible the book that understands me because this is what struck him most forcibly about it. It understood him and helped him to understand himself. The third item is the word will lead us to the exercise of true power and impact. It will make our life count. It turns life into something worth living, something worthwhile. If we learn the truth about ourselves and we learn the truth about Jesus and discover that God has put the two together, he in us, we have discovered the secret of, of life. We've found that the secret way by which our life made, may be made to count and to become exciting and meaningful. Paul puts it in one brief phrase, the whole story, Christ in you, Colossians 1.27, the only hope we will ever have of obtaining the exciting glory that God intends for human beings. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The fourth factor is that the Bible explains the cause and cure of family, social, and world problems. We cannot understand what is going on in our family life, our social life, and in all the problems that are before us in, in international affairs unless we understand the viewpoint of the scripture. More and more, there comes from all directions a confession of utter bankruptcy in understanding what is happening in life. But one great thing about the Bible is that it gives us a worldview which fits all the symptoms. It explains them logically, reasonably, and offers the only possible remedy for them. It gives not only the cause, but the cure. As far as any, any individual is able to work it out so that no, no one need any longer to be a part of the problem, but can become part of the solution. The fifth item is that the Bible gives specific answers to many questions on life and death. Are there other beings in the universe? The Bible answers that. What happens after death? Who hasn't asked that question? The Bible can answer it. How did evil originate? Where did it come from? Oh, and the many questions that are answered in the word of God. Six, it reveals the future and the past. It goes back to the origin of the universe and of humanity itself, and then looks on to the end of, the, of history and tells us what the final patterns or events will be. No other book can do that. There's no other source of knowledge like that. And finally, seventh, it protects from unknown dangers. 
We have no idea what a knowledge of the scripture is doing for us and protecting us from demonic assault, from the occult, from the weird, from hidden temptations and dangers of the unknown. Increasingly, we are made aware that men do not know very much about such things, despite all of our knowledge. From these vast areas of mystery and darkness, there comes all sorts of danger from which the knowledge of the word, even though we may not understand the nature of the dangers themselves, nevertheless can deliver us. A believer, a Christian who learns to feed on the word, becomes stable, alive, vital, an exciting person. Whenever a church takes the word of God seriously, we will always find that church to be alive, extremely vital, changing society around. So now what is Jesus saying to us? Well, he is saying that if we are going to watch for his coming, the first essential is that we must know the word of God. We must read and learn and study and seek to know him. First of all, how well do we know the word of God? So we're going to take a little measure, a little, little self-assessment, which is given actually in chapter five of Hebrews, by which we can check ourselves as to how much we know of scripture. So here we go. First of all, and, and this is not, by the way, um, how much scripture you can quote chapter and verse. There are a lot of people that can quote chapter and verse a lot of the Bible that really don't understand what it's saying. So we're talking about understanding here, okay? So here, here's the little, little test, little three test. First of all, can we tell the difference between right and wrong, especially when right looks wrong and wrong looks right? Have we learned how to use scripture so as to tell the difference? Secondly, can we translate scripture into right conduct? Have we learned how to apply what we read to our own life so that it changes us and we end up doing the right instead of the wrong? Or do we constantly find ourselves thinking we're doing the right thing and end up by looking back and finding that we may, may have made a mistake again? That shows we don't know the word of God. The third test, can we teach others? Are we able to help someone else? Or have we been a Christian all these years and we still don't know how to teach anyone else? But we need ourselves to be taught the first principles of the word of God. These are the ultimate tests. They're, they're very important because if we are not on the way to these goals, then we do not have much of a chance to stand in the days of deceit. We're moving into a time in history when we will be flooded with more and more pressure to accept false ideas than we have ever had before. We're already feeling that pressure, widespread delusions in our day based on philosophies that are basically fundamentally wrong. Yet students and adults are accepting them with gullibility. We'll never be able to stand against the flood of deceit unless we know something about the word of God. And that is what Jesus is saying. If we do not know it, we'll be sucked in, we'll not be able to stand. So I would urge that each of us make it a kind of a commitment service, kind of a New Year's commitment, if we will, where we say to ourselves, I'm going to learn the scriptures. I'm going to study them. I'm going to study them with a group of friends, with a group of people. I'm going to get involved in a Bible study, something that's happening in the life of the church here or, or wherever I may live. 
or, or just a, maybe it's a family study. Maybe it's a group of friends. We're just going to sit down and we're going to learn the scriptures together. It's going to take some resolve and it will take some continued exposure to the word. It's going to take some challenging, both publicly and in private. But we can't learn it all here in a 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. So let's do that. Let's commit to study the word of God as we watch and wait. Amen. God bless and Happy New Year.